You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Chris Jennings. Joining us today, we have a very special guest in regards to retriever rehabilitation. We have Dr. Janelle Appel, and she is a certified canine rehabilitation therapist. Dr. Janelle Appel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. And we wanted to have you on here, one, because you were recommended um, by our good friends and partners at Purina. Um, but another reason is we get to hear about all different types of sporting dog injuries, um, even personal injuries. There's people around the offices, um, myself included, but also some of our listeners have kind of sent us emails about their dogs being injured. And maybe we could get some more content on this. And, and your name definitely came to the top of the list here. Um, but before we get started on the rehabilitation conversation. I wanted you to provide our audience with a little bit of background of where you work, uh, you know, what you do on a daily basis and how you got there, how you became, you know, a rehabilitation therapist for dogs. Absolutely. So uh, my story uh, starts uh, well before I actually went to vet school. I was working at a rehabilitation hospital uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I was doing my undergraduate work at NC State University. And I really fell in love with the whole process of rehab working at that hospital. And we started to deal with a lot of athletes that were coming our way and really made me intrigued by how these athletes could come in and recover and get back to sport uh, just within a few months of rehabilitation. And myself being a former athlete and, and having chronic injuries 
um, I really started to think about this process and how these dogs were affected in terms of they didn't understand what was happening. They had an injury. They were sidelined. They couldn't do what they loved to do. And I thought it would be really neat to work with these guys and get them back to sport. So after vet school, I pursued certification as a rehab therapist and became specialized in sports medicine. So now I deal primarily with athletes and I work out of a hospital in Tallahassee, Florida, one day a week. But I also have a mobile practice, which I established in 2013. And I have a 28-foot mobile unit, which services the Southeast in the winters and Wisconsin in the summer. And I see primarily retrievers, uh, but I also do other sporting dogs like agility and herding. And it's been wonderful. I love what I do every day. And is this something that, you know, when you say the mobile unit, um, are you going to like field trials and, you know, things like that to assist at times? Is that is that something that you do? Absolutely. So I will attend weekend field trials uh, within several hours of of where I'm living And I also am contracted with multiple professional kennels. So I see dogs on a weekly basis doing orthopedic exams and taking care of any injuries that may have come up uh, during the week. And that way, keeping my hands on these dogs, I'm able to help prevent injury, which is really what I'm in this for, um, to try to do as much as we can to prevent these injuries from actually happening. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to the conversation of prevention, and and we've we've gone through that a lot with some of the uh, trainers that we've had on the show recently. Uh, you know, Mike Stewart, the owner of Wild Rose Kennels, he joins us pretty regularly to talk about, you know, really just some things to do to to keep your dog from being injured. You know, all of those avoidance things that that Mike is really good at tuning in. But I guess my first question would be, but what what is the most common injury that you see in these dogs and what they do? I would say based on the amount of pressure that our dogs put on their front ends in general, and even regular pet dogs are putting 60% of their weight on their front end naturally, uh, most of the injuries I see have to do with the shoulder, the elbow, the carpus, so the wrist area. So mainly front end injuries. I would say bicep tendinopathies, so tearing of the bicep tendon or even just chronic wear and tear of the bicep are some of the things I deal with on a daily basis. Uh, dogs that have had either injury in the past acutely now have become chronic or dogs that actually suffer an injury in the field, such as uh, stepping in a hole and falling and tearing bicep tendons. Um, these are things that I see regularly. The other issues uh, that are very common are iliopsoas strains and cruciate tears. So on the back end, the iliopsoas, which is the groin muscle of the dog, is easily strained in our guys because of the repetitive types of work that we do. Going from launching from a sit into a full-out run can put a lot of strain on the iliopsoas muscle. And the same way with cruciate disease, there's a lot of stopping and starting and tight turns when we run blinds, put a lot of extra stress on those joints that normal pet dogs do not under undertake. So those are the, the things that I commonly deal with. And when you say cruciate, can you just explain kind of Provide a visual of exactly where that is. Sure. So the the cruciate ligament is within the knee of a dog. And if we compare that to a human, that would be like an ACL injury or tear in a football player, per se. So they tear that tendon and it creates instability within the joint, a lot of inflammation. And the dog can either tear it completely or just partially, which is uh, sometimes difficult for veterinarians to diagnose. And I see a lot of 
uh, diagnoses where we think it's a cruciate tear, but it's actually an iliopsoas strain uh, because they can look very similar in their presentations. So it's very important in our sporting dogs to make sure we have a proper diagnosis. Yeah, and but before we go all the way into, um, you know, how you're rehabilitating from these injuries, um, let's go back to avoidance. You know, what are you telling trainers? Hey, you know, here's what you have to do to make sure that you don't create this injury. You know, uh, obviously there are times when dogs will be injured no matter what, but how can you go about avoiding these? So the biggest thing is thinking about our dogs in terms of, in my mind, human athletics. So as a human athlete, I would never undertake a practice session or a competition without properly warming myself up. And when I first started becoming involved with retrievers, what I found to be not true is uh, the process of truly warming up our dogs correctly before working them. And this is a very simple process, uh, simply going for a five to 10 minute fast paced walk just to get blood flowing to the muscles properly. It is a simple thing you can do to help create less stress on the joints. And that's really what this is all about is supporting our joints, um, by, by using our muscles properly, by having decent blood flow and creating more flexibility and extensibility in the tissues. So something as simple as the warm-up is huge and the same way the cool-down. So after the dog is done working, a slow-paced 5- to 10-minute walk to decrease the heart rate very slowly and allow the muscles to not pool blood but push blood out appropriately as the heart rate decreases. And that helps to decrease the amount of lactic acid buildup, which can create soreness, tightness, and lack of range of motion ultimately in the muscles. And that's difficult, you know, with a dog. You, t- you mentioned soreness. Um, you know, a lot of these dogs are, are pretty much tough as nails, the ones that I've hunted with over my years. Um, and they're not going to necessarily show this soreness. So that's, you know, that's why, you know, I think you're really hit on the point that, you know, stretching out, you know, having a very, you know, fast paced walk type of thing. Um, they're not going to show you that they're actually sore after working. Um, so you're going to have to take these precautions. You know, trainers themselves will have to take these precautions, uh, for the dog. And that's why we like to stress this so much. Um, you know, we talk about it all the time and you've probably heard it, uh, many, many times, but you know, duck hunters during the summer were out fishing and, and doing other things sometimes. And sometimes the dogs are laying around in the backyard or in the, on the couch all summer. And then some people tend to take their dog out on opening day and the dog gets injured. And that leads us back to, you know, in, into my question of once your dog does get injured, because you've, uh, people have obviously avoided this, uh, uh, stretching routine and maintaining proper exercise. What are you going to this person and saying, all right, here's what we need to do? You know, if someone, if a dog does get injured, um, where, where do you start with a trainer per se? So the number one thing in my mind is always the proper diagnosis. I, I get phone calls on a weekly basis to consult on cases where dogs have injured themselves, gone to a local veterinarian, and they have a presumptive diagnosis, which is a blanket statement of, I think it's a soft tissue injury. And you should rest the dog and put the dog on anti-inflammatories for a few days and then see how he does. Well, that's great. But the problem with that is if this is a significant injury, if we bring the dog back out and he looks fine, that doesn't necessarily mean that he is fine. 
and especially with soft tissue injury, uh, if we do not properly diagnose it and understand what we're dealing with, we can end up injuring the dog further. So I always tell people, let's make sure we have a proper diagnosis, specifically looking for either an orthopedic specialist or a rehabilitation therapist like myself, who have all been trained in soft tissue diagnosis, soft tissue injury. Um, that's the most critical piece. After that, in terms of rehabilitation and returning the dog to sport, that's where the rehabilitation therapist really comes into play. They understand the dog's needs in terms of their sport and the types of actions and types of muscles that need to be recovered and how well they need to be recovered in terms of what this dog needs to do. Nutrition is so important. You know, we, I put it together here as nutrition and exercise, kind of a, a together thing. So, um, when you're talking and, and dealing with trainers, I mean, are, are, is there something that you recommend that, you know, you say, Hey, this is a kind of a feeding regimen or do trainers typically have their feeding regimen and you just kind of provide information for additional nutrition? How does that work? Sure. So I'm a huge proponent of, um, a, specific, a very specific or specialized diet for athletes. And this is a difficult thing to find in, in the world today, which is a diet that has science behind it and has a true ratio, correct ratio of protein to fat, which our dogs as athletes require a completely different level than a normal pet dog. So that is why I've always been a huge proponent of Purina and their performance food, uh, because I'm a huge believer in the proper amount of energy that these dogs need to function has a lot to do with their physical ability and also prevention of injury. If we are not giving the body what it needs to not only function properly, but recover uh, from the amount of strain and stress that the athlete goes through, then we certainly are going to have a dog that is more predisposed to injury. So I am a proponent of the performance sport by Purina and 30-20, which is a 30% protein, 20% fat. And there are other supplements that I do recommend also for prevention and protection of joints, which is a glucosamine chondroitin supplement. Uh, the one I like is called Dasaquin by Nutramax. I use Dasaquin Advanced on almost all of my athletes from the age of four months on. A lot of different functions in the body that omega-3s are important for. Joint inflammation, but also as well as uh, brain health and eye function. And I also recommend a probiotic, uh, which is something that helps the bacteria levels in the gut stay healthy. And I think that's a huge part of our dog's immune systems and overall health. Kind of explain to our listeners like what exactly you're you're doing with these probiotics and and what how you're um, using them with your athletes. So I actually prefer to supplement probiotics um, in a way that we are constantly changing the bacterias. So I will take uh, three specific products that have backed science behind them, one being the Purina product, Fortiflora, uh, the second being Proviable by Nutramax, and the third uh, being VizBiome, which is uh, a human product that also has a canine formula. And the reason why I do this is because our bacteria levels change all the time and the types of bacteria in our gut that is necessary for, for true gut health. So I like to take a course. Um, I use one product for the course of that product, some being lasting a month, some lasting two months. 
and then switch to the next probiotic uh, following that to make sure the dog has a balance of different bacteria loads. And I think in my mind, that creates uh, an atmosphere of just overall health. And what exactly is that doing for the dog? I mean, is it making them feel better? Is it giving them more energy? Is it, you know, you know what I mean? Like, like how, how in the long run, kind of the 10,000 foot level, like what, what is the benefit of it? So I think we've come to realize in medicine or specifically over the past decade that the immune system is derived, uh, quite a bit from our gut and our, and our uh, biome of bacteria in our gut. And I think in our athletes, where we create environments of stress on a daily basis, being mental and physical, that the best thing we can do is to temper that stress by creating a non-inflammatory environment within the gut. And we all know when we take a dog out hunting for a few days or to a trial, there are many dogs that have stress diarrhea. And I think this is a great example of how a probiotic can come in and help and, and really enhance that dog's ability to function and get through that competition or uh, work event um, by having some support in the stress that they're undergoing. And really, that's the main goal is to decrease the amount of stress on the dog's body. And you're, and you're giving that several days before an event, or is it a constant Typically, it's a constant thing, but for many professional trainers, this is difficult with multiple dogs, especially if they're feeding uh, multiple different supplements. So for professionals, I usually do a dosing of once to twice a week as sort of a, a maintenance level. We've hit on several different things, joints, ankles, your knees. But one thing I wanted to talk to you, we had a past article in the magazine and it, it was really popular and very well received, um, both from our magazine audience and online. Um, and it, it was the health of a dog's feet and the writer, Tom Davis, he used you as the, as the reference point. And I, and, and I was, I, I wanted to talk to you about this. Kind of talk about some of the common foot injuries that you see and something that, something that you would say, oh, this is something that a lot of sporting dog trainers need to pay attention to. That's a great question. Uh, I think that the main thing that I'm seeing in these guys is nail bed injuries. And this typically comes from nails being too long. So dogs coming out of trucks and catching their nails on the, on the truck or the door or the ramp as they're coming down. This happens very frequently to the point where either all or part of the nail is ripped, ripped off. This is something that I deal with probably on a monthly basis and really can be prevented by keeping these nails as short as possible. So that would be the number one thing I see. The second would be obviously the acute injury in the field, the, the cut pad, the laceration from running in the field, hitting a rock or hitting something in the water um, that creates a laceration in the pad. And these can be very difficult to deal with, especially if you're in the middle of a competition, uh, because depending on the severity of the injury, they can create quite a bit of lameness and soreness in the dog but also set up an environment for bacteria due to the fact that the dog has to stand and walk on that pad um, throughout, throughout the day. They can't hold it up. This creates the ability for infection to uh, set in very quickly. So dealing with the foot pad injuries um, right as they happen and attending to them, I would say 
uh, is probably the most critical part of having something like that occur. You know, I, I've seen, and this is probably more Upland. I've seen it more oftentimes in Upland, but the dogs have these little booties that they wear. Is that something that you recommend or is that something that no, not necessarily in this situation? So I will typically recommend booties for dogs that have been injured and we are trying to get them through that work event or competition. I've had a few dogs during trials where I have asked the judges to be able to cover the pad with a, with a support like that, mainly to help prevent uh, further injury or, or infection. But typically I don't use those booties as a way of preventative uh, measure, mostly because it takes a while for dogs to, to get adjusted to them. And I find that they tend to become loose if they're not applied properly and can create more issues with gait abnormalities than anything. So if I need to use one to help cover an injury, I certainly will, but I usually don't. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Recommend them as a preventative. And in the article, you, you kind of you give a very good description of how you assess a, a pad injury. Um, you know, how you can look at it and see the severity of it. I mean, these, these foot injuries are tend to be so very common in duck hunting when people are hunting out of blinds, because a lot of times these blinds aren't maintained well, and there's a, you know, a piece of wood that's cut or a nail, even, you know, something that could, could, uh, you know, cut the dog or injure the dog. Um, but if you, if let's just say someone is sitting in the blind and their dog has a cut, like when you look at it, uh, what are you looking for to know? Like, all right, Hey, hunt's over. We got to go. Or, Oh, that's just a scratch here. Get the canine first aid kit and let's, let's clean it up. Uh, how, how can you tell the severity? So I think the depth of the laceration is is the key here when we're trying to determine whether this needs to be dealt with by a veterinarian or something we can deal with in the field. If I am 
able to see what we call sort of the meat of the pad, which uh, in a, for instance, a black Labrador, they have black paw pads. If the laceration uh, goes deep enough where we can see a change in color, so uh, a white or off-whitish type of tissue, that laceration is deep enough that would require a suturing to be able to heal properly. And that's typically a scenario that will create a significant lameness in the dog where they either do not want to bear weight through the leg or are very, very tentative and, and unwilling to put a significant amount of weight on the, on the leg. Usually in superficial lacerations, the dog might be a little sore, but it does not typically create the type of lameness that would concern me. What I always say is no lameness is insignificant. So if the dog is unwilling to put at least 80 to 90% of their weight through that leg, then they probably should not be performing or continuing to hunt. Explain the grass ons, uh, kind of what they are and what hunters should look for in their retrievers uh, when you're leaving the field. Yeah, grass ons are very scary and, and can become serious issues. And many times we're not lucky enough to find them before they do cause problems. So I like to be as proactive as possible. And one of the ways that you can do that is, number one, making sure that the hair in between the paw pads is cut as short as possible to help prevent the hair from grabbing on to some of these ons. Uh, they very quickly can seed through tissue um, just within a few minutes and can go to different parts of the body. So the areas that I'm always checking for after the hunt is between the paw pads, looking for any possible puncture wounds, which you may not necessarily actually see the on, but you could see a puncture of where the on would go through. And the same in uh, in and around the dog's ears, um, again, the lower legs. So these things can grab onto hair, even short hair, and seed into the tissue of the lower limbs very easily. And usually they create an area of inflammation where you can actually feel a small area or a pocket of inflammation if you're lucky and you're able to determine that there's something there under the skin. So I would say the number one thing is to make sure the hair of the pad is short and always check the pads after you're done for the day to make sure there's no puncture wounds or nothing that you can see, obviously, to be able to pull out. And just to give our audience an idea of what we kind of jumped right into it, these grass ons are actually, they're barbed seed heads of certain grasses and, and some of them are invasives and some of them aren't, but they're, they're small seed heads that, that do exactly, uh, what Dr. Appel just explained. You know, they can, they can migrate their way right in, um, uh, through the skin and, and cause significant damage. And, and they're really, they can be very difficult to, uh, to, to find. Um, what are some instances of, of, that you've had? I'm sure you've had some experience or lots of experience with this, um, where you, you did not find one until it kind of, you know, got really inflamed and, and some, some things that you had to address with these seed ons. Unfortunately, I've had quite a bit of experience and some of them have been severe to the point where, uh, multiple areas of lung tissue have been removed. Uh, the national champion Grady, was one of these dogs that we dealt with that had a grass on and had part of his lung taken out. And unfortunately, in many of these situations, the dog does not present sick or debilitated in any way until the grass on has created a significant amount of damage. 
And this can be a dog that looks perfectly healthy one day and the next day is unable and unwilling to get up and has a fever uh, and, and is very sick. So it's a scary proposition to think that something like this could be happening. Most of the time, you're going to have the ability to see some type of swelling on the dog um, where the grass on has the body has tried to wall off the on or the foreign material. And if we're lucky enough to have that, we can track uh, where the grass on came from through the body and flush that area and deal with with that superficial damage. Uh, but many of these dogs, especially spaniels that are closer to the ground, tend to pick these things up and we really never know until the dog is sick. Yeah, those are, that's scary and that's something for, for everyone to really pay attention to. Uh, you know, the next thing I want to talk with you about uh, is something that we talked about before we came on air and it, it, it is it is a very hot topic. It's something that we ran recently in the magazine. Um, and it's something that, you know, can fall under everything from folklore to, you know, I think it's wise tales or, um, you know, but it, it's the do claw debate, you know, do, should sporting dogs have their do claws removed, which I believe, you know, there was a time when everyone removed the do claw immediately, um, for, from, for these dogs. And, and there's some new science out there and I kind of wanted you to talk about it. Um, there's some new science that says that it's not necessary and even could potentially be harmful to remove the do claw. Yeah, I am a huge proponent of leaving do claws on. And as a rehabilitation therapist, this has a lot to do with truly the anatomy of the dog. And when we look at the do claw, there are actually five tendons that attach to that do claw. And when we talk about what a tendon's function is, the other end of a tendon is a muscle. So tendons are attached to muscles. And when we detach those tendons or cut those tendons, we are also taking away the ability of that muscle to function. So in other words, those muscles are going to get smaller or atrophy because they are no longer used. And what happens with this process when we cut the tendons, basically the dew claw is a function for the dog to prevent excessive torque. So when the dog is running, particularly galloping, running across the field, the dew claw is actually in contact with the ground. And we see this in slow motion video uh, when we take video of dogs running through the field. When we're asking the dog to stop quickly, especially as in running a blind, the dew claw actually digs into the ground and supports the lower leg and prevents this excessive torque on the lower leg. So if the dog doesn't have the dew claw, there is this excessive motion. And where that stress is related to is the actual carpal joint itself or the wrist. And when we have those actions chronically over time, we create an inflammatory process that ultimately can result in carpal arthritis. So loss of range of motion, um, debilitating pain and inflammation. And I think over time, what we've come to realize in our dogs and specifically in my mind, from what I've seen in my time with the retrievers in the last decade, I've probably taken one dew claw off uh, from an injury suffered in the field. And what I tell people is at the end of the day, if the dew claw is injured in some way, we're going to remove it. That would be the treatment of choice for a severe injury to a dew claw. So why not give the dog the opportunity to 
hopefully prevent injury, prevent chronic disuse and arthritis, um, ultimately. And if there does become a problem, we simply take it off. Yeah, that, you know, I think that's what I was always told. You know, I got my first retriever when I was like 15, 16 years old. And I think that that was everyone's like, you know, your dog has this dew claw is going to catch it on a stick. And I'm like, you know, I, at the time, I, I don't think I even got the dew claw removed, not because I was some scientific, you know, leader there, but, uh, I just didn't, I don't think I just ever did it. Um, I was too young to even think about that, but that's what it was always told to me is that the dew claws were a hindrance. So it's interesting that now, you know, kind of as we, we move forward with sporting dog science, um, you know, there's so much more information out there that's saying that, yes, I mean, they need that extra dew claw. There's a reason for it. It's not, there's, there's not, you know, nothing in nature has something for no reason. Yeah. I've had a, a few instances that I can share that were obviously related to the dew claw. And two of these cases had to do with wet ground uh, when the dog was asked to stop quickly at running a land blind. Uh, the dog was witnessed to have essentially tried to stop and because the ground was wet, slipped with the front, with the front leg, had nothing to catch the front leg with and ultimately uh, created a situation where all of the tendons of the carpus were torn. And both of these dogs um, were sent to surgery and ultimately their careers were ended because of a hyperextension injury in the carpus. So this is a very good um, example of the possibility of what can happen. And ultimately, a lot of the things that I see with dew claws taken off that become problems later in life are things that I think people don't think about. Many Breeders tend to try to remove them themselves when the puppies are a few days old. And even some veterinarians that remove them for breeders do not always um, take them off appropriately. And this creates a residual bony fragment that can actually cause many problems and, and pain, be a source of pain later in the dog's life. And I've seen many, many cases of this that ultimately I've had to go in and re remove the fragment or the tissue that remains. So ultimately now you're doing another surgery. Um, so for me at the end of the day, I think that the chances of severe injury versus the potential for long-term uh, side effects that can be detrimental, it's definitely worth taking a second look at. You know, everyone can go to ducks.org and find this article. Um, it'll be live uh, by the time this airs. But um, is there any other resources that you would recommend that for people to go and look at, at this kind of the dew claw debate and where this information is coming from? Yes. Yeah, so there's actually a great article uh, by Dr. Christine Zink. Uh, she's a veterinarian and also a rehabilitation therapist. And her the title of her article is called Do the Dew Claws. And <laughs> uh, it's a very succinct but perfect uh, explanation of what this what these tendons do what they're there for and she actually gives a anatomical diagram within this piece to show exactly how these tendons attach and to me uh, after reading this article I think it would be hard for anyone to want to take the, the ducal off
Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, before I get you out of here, I, I just had one question. It kind of popped into my mind and I thought this would be a good, a good opportunity to give our listeners kind of a representation of everything that, that you do and, and, and how far the sporting dog world has come as far as medicine and rehabilitation. Um, can you think of any example where you, um, have worked with a dog that had a pretty disastrous injury, um, while either hunting or in the field? Um, and, and through a rehabilitation, maybe surgery, then rehabilitation process, um, the dog came back to, you know, its original ability. Can you think of one example of that? Uh, absolutely. There are, there are definitely many examples. I would say that one of the ones that comes to mind is actually a younger dog that suffered a cruciate injury at the age of 11 months. And this was a very difficult uh, recovery, specifically because this dog was still really a puppy, um, but at the same time was was trying to go through this period of learning that was critical in terms of being a field trial dog, um, her ability to get through this training process and losing months on end uh, at a very critical point in her career was hard for the owner and the trainers. So I took the dog and personally rehabbed the dog uh, for several months. And she came back to sport within 16 weeks after surgery, was doing very, very well, and then ended up blowing her other knee uh, within a couple months of, of returning to sport. So again, rehabilitated her. And now we have a dog with two bad knees that's under the age of three. And she's lost a tremendous amount of training at the same time. And ultimately, throughout this process, um, this dog came back and qualified for a national amateur and uh, made it through the, through the ninth series of the national amateur. And it just goes to show you that even a dog suffering injury at a, at a young age can still recover and come back and, and do great things. And I think it's a, a testament to what our dog's capabilities are their spirit and their their passion for what they do absolutely no that's great and you know as part of that rehabilitation you said when you took the dog what are some examples of some of the things that that you do um as as getting that dog back to you know health i mean is it is it like swimming drills or you know just some examples of some things that that you would do with your dog sure so in the initial phases of an injury like this with a cruciate the biggest thing is range of motion and strength. So we're looking to make sure we continually increase range of motion, which is naturally lost after a surgical procedure in dealing with a cruciate injury. And then starting strengthening exercises as well. So in the initial phases, we do a lot of passive types of exercises where we are physically uh, handling the dog. We're doing balance exercises where we pick up one leg and ask the dog to balance on the other leg. Um, we start strengthening exercises on a balance disc. We walk over cavalettis, which are basically hurdles where we ask the dog to uh, step high step over these PVC pipes that help to increase range and provide the ability for the dog to bear full weight through the affected leg. And then as we move on, we start to do more difficult exercises. We incorporate figure eights where we ask the dog to walk in a figure eight pattern amongst um, cones or, or obstacles. 
and we introduce things like resistance bands. Um, I have a resistance band program that is designed just like in humans, different degrees of resistance where we provide the ability for the dog to slowly improve strength by advancing through these different resistances and creating um, a situation where the dog wears a harness with a band attached to the lower leg and helps build the quadricep and hamstring muscles. And then from there, we advance to more of a conditioning program. I introduce a roading program that includes the dog at a very moderate to, I would say, so a gate, a gate pattern of around a moderate trot, like four to five miles an hour. Usually I do it next to a four wheeler. So the dog is controlled and I keep that pace and we increase time over several weeks. And then we introduced a conditioning program in the water as well, where we have the dog follow a, ki- a kayak or we send the dog across the pond for a bumper and we increase time, swimming time in the water. So by the time the dog is ready to return to sport, they have gone through a full conditioning program where they are ready to re-enter training um, and will very easily be reintroduced to exercise. It just sounds exactly like something that would be done with a human athlete. I mean, it's it's the it's a very very similar similar situation, and and um, I think I think this is this has been great. Um, I appreciate you coming on here and and sharing all this information with us. Can you please provide our audience where they can find you and find more information about what you do? So the easiest way to get a hold of me is my business email, which is drj at sportvetmobile.com. So drj at sportvetmobile.com. Um, I know that our listeners have, have, uh, or will probably take a, a lot of weight, a lot away from this in a sense that, um, you know, they're going to be able to look for some of these things and know, I mean, I think one of the first things you said here that I appreciate is, getting a proper diagnosis. Um, and I think that's, that's something that, that our audience can take away. Um, really, really having a specialist look at their athlete, look at their dog, um, and, and be very thorough in that diagnosis. And I think that that's a really good takeaway along with everything else. You know, this has been some great information. I do appreciate you joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. And thank you again for having me. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Janelle Appel, for joining us today on the DU Podcast and, and really bringing to light how the rehabilitation of some of these sporting dogs is a very complex, science-based process. And I think there's a, there's a lot more conversation to have there. I'd like to thank Clay Baird, our producer, for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us and supporting Wetlands Conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient. 
and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 